I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm terrible at gardening. Even though we had a few things growing in my family's yard when I was a kid, I never quite grasped how to properly take care of plants. The few times I've tried since then always start off promising until one day I come outside and my plants are withering away. Gardening and farming is a skill I am very happy to leave to the experts. Which is why if the government ever asked me to help grow food for myself and my family, I would be doomed. But that's exactly what they've done before. Several times, in fact. Welcome to the Reconnecting Roots podcast, where we look at the past, present, and future of American progress and culture, discovering our values along the way. I'm your host, Ryan Estabrooks. And I'm Gabe McCauley, host of the TV series Reconnecting Roots. When the TV show, we look at a broad overview of a given topic, but here, we're able to do more of a deep dive. And I'll be your guide throughout our story today. I'll be out in the field getting insights from people about our topic. And today, we're looking at the Victory Gardens movement. Gabe, had you heard of Victory Gardens before now? No, I've not heard of Victory Gardens. Uh, they sound pretty great. I kind of, I wish my garden was a Victory Garden because I assume it means you just, you win at gardening. You know, it's a victorious garden. So that'd be pretty awesome. So what are Victory Gardens? Well, uh, I'll let Jeffrey Loesch answer that question. The concept of a victory garden originated in World War One, but World War One from for the United States was very short. But the Second World War, of course, went on for longer, and because we were attacked in Pearl Harbor, it really solidified the public, and everybody wanted to do whatever they could. Jeffrey's a gardener for the Dowling Community Garden in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's one of the only remaining victory gardens from the World War II era, and the only one that continues to grow vegetables. People figured out that by growing their own vegetables, and particularly by canning them, uh, that they could reduce the amount of demand by the civilian, the U.S. civilian population, uh, and that that uh, production, by the way, which was all, virtually all of it was canned, could be sent to the troops, the American troops, to allied troops like the British, and to some extent to allied civilians. And so there was an effort that began in 1942 to build victory gardens wherever they could. So lots of people planted them in their backyard. Like Jeffrey mentioned, the concept of victory gardens goes back during the era of the First World War, technically before the United States even entered the war. It was in March of 1917 when a man named Charles Lathrop Pack first came up with the idea. Charles was one of the richest people in America at the time, but was also a known collector and organizer. He noticed how in Europe, farming declined after the war, thanks in part to the high number of farmers who were drafted into the military. He also believed the infrastructure for transporting food in America was already in terrible shape and would only get worse after the war. So his idea was to organize the National War Garden Commission, which would promote the idea of war gardens, which were eventually rebranded as victory gardens. The goal was to convince as many regular American citizens as possible to grow their own food. And to help accomplish that, they had to get the word out to the public. Posters were put up all over the country with catchphrases such as, 
turn your reserves into preserves, and sow the seeds of victory. Newspapers and pamphlets spread the word, not only about the mission, but also included instructions on how to harvest your own garden. Even schools were being asked to take part in planting all of these new gardens. The United States School Garden Army was established by the Bureau of Education, adding farming to the list of things kids were learning besides good old reading, writing, and arithmetic. And it all seemed to work. More than 3 million new gardens were sowed within the first year of the campaign. An additional 5 million new gardens were laid out the following year. Think about that for a second. The American government asked its citizens to step away from the modern convenience of buying food from markets and local farmers and instead grow their own. And millions responded and actually did just that. But it was just the beginning, because when we had another world war happen a few decades later, the call went out once again for family members to become farmers. Of all the weapons the United Nations are using to win this war, food is among the most important. Food to keep our husky young fighting men fit. Food to give them the strength to battle for freedom. But in addition to food that must go to the warrior at the front, there must be food for the worker at home. The man who makes the guns and ships and planes and tanks that will bring us the final victory. Then there must be food for all the rest of us who are doing our part to win the war so that we can work harder, longer and better. That's from a promotional film made by the government in the early 1940s. By that time, they had a new tool to use to spread their message. Film. In spite of every obstacle, we must feed our fighting men, our allies and ourselves, if we are to win the war and write the peace. This then is a challenge to every loyal American citizen. What can we do to help win the war with food? The answer to that challenge comes from Washington, from the Office of Civilian Defense. Victory Gardens, that's the answer. We can grow food for victory in our own backyards and even in vacant lots where perhaps only weeds flourished before. Because so long as this war lasts, great quantities of food must be grown. Americans were encouraged to plant crops in every available area they could find, not just around the house. Public grounds were also turned into victory gardens. If you would have strolled through Golden Gate Park in San Francisco around that time, you would have been able to see over 800 different gardens. All in all, the movement was a hit. By 1944, approximately 20 million victory gardens were set up. And as Jeffrey was telling me, it made up a huge chunk of our produce consumption. It was estimated at a national level that the Victory Gardens provided about 40% of the vegetables for all the U.S. civilians in the whole country. So the production was pretty, pretty significant. So that meant 60% was commercial, but then whatever was left over from the commercial went into the troops and to the, to the allies. Wow, 40% in just a few years. Simply because our government told us it was a good idea and we should do it. Can you remember the last time our government made a suggestion to us and we all dove right in and covered 40% of our nation's needs in just a few years? And this wasn't something quickly done, something you could just, you know, check over, 
and maybe knock it out one evening after work. This is a big side project you would have to keep up with pretty much daily. It was a commitment. But I wonder, how big of a garden did our government suggest we grow? Well, here's what they recommended in their promo films. Now let's see on this little model of their quarter-acre garden the plan they work out. Here, four rows of early potato. Then two double rows of peas, early, medium, and late. One row of cabbage. Double row of carrots and beets, half a row of each. One double row of greens, spinach, mustard, turnips, and chard. Tomatoes, early and late. Peppers, half a row. Radishes, lettuce, and onions next to the house. Asparagus and rhubarb beds are at the side. Pole beans, three rows. Four rows of sweet corn along the fence. And finally, two rows of lima beans complete the early garden. Wow. I was thinking maybe some tomatoes, some lettuce, maybe a few herbs, but they recommended growing 20 different types of plants. As someone who is terrible at gardening, that sounds like a lot. If they were to ask me to do that today, I would, I would just laugh, knowing that would be way over my head. Do you think you would be able to handle 20 different plants if they asked you to? Uh, you know, I'd like to think that I could handle 20 different plants. I don't know. I, I've had a garden for four to five years, or at least making a pretty good go at one. And I, I've maybe had 10 to maybe pushing 15 different types of plants. But I mean, that's, you know, sometimes I'll have a couple one-offs. Like, I'm just going to experiment with this kind of pepper or do a Brussels sprout or an okra or something like that. So if you're actually trying to grow you know, a few or a whole row or a section and to get 20, you know, to have enough for your family. Uh, it's tough, man. It's tough just to garden in general, but to keep up with variety and to know how to grow each of them well, because they kind of all can be a little bit particular, you know? Some of them like a particular kind of soil. Some of them don't. Some need more sun, more water. So, man, it's tough. Gardening is hard. Well, I'm glad our country didn't have to solely depend on me for this type of thing. A lot of people chipped in, did the work, and reaped the rewards of having their own fresh produce. But the effort didn't last forever. After the war ended, so did the government's campaign. It left many people wondering, now that a huge number of Americans were gardening, how long would they continue to do so? World War II ended in 1945, but it was still going to take some time for soldiers to get home and back to work, and for our transportation systems to shift back to hauling produce instead of materials for the war effort. So it would have been great if Victory Gardens would have continued through the growing seasons of 1946, but many people stopped planting after we declared victory. Because of this, America had a food shortage until food production got back to normal. I guess the Victory Garden campaign worked a little too well, and the agriculture system had become very dependent on it. As the amount of family gardens shrank after the war, so too did the amount of people working in the agriculture business. By 1950, farmers made up a little over 12% of the labor force. By 2010, that number dropped to 1.6%. That number surprises me because even though I know there are so many different types of jobs available now than there you know, were compared to the 1950s, it seems like it should be higher than that. Considering we all need food to live and that whole surviving problem we have to put up with every day. Gabe, does that number surprise you? 
Yeah, I mean, that seems like a really small number considering we all have to eat. It does make you wonder, are, are we getting food from other countries? Or are the farms that are growing the food that massive that they can handle the amount of food we need when there's so few farmers and so many mouths to feed? But I think it's something all current farmers are very aware of. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I visited a place called Seven Springs Farm in Kentucky, which was a pretty big farm. It's still a family-owned one. And when I spoke with Joe Nichols, who's one of the owners, he told me all about this problem. Every year we're getting to a smaller dwindling bunch, less numbers of farmers expected to do the same things throughout the same year. And by 2050, we're supposed to feed three times as many people as we got here today. In 1960, a farmer fed 19 people. Today, this operation, just guessing, the average farmer is going to feed 160. Wow. Yeah, I could see how that would be a problem. Yeah, just, just a minor problem. Yeah, no biggie. Well, if you have a lower amount of people growing the food, that can mean a greater risk if a crop disease breaks out at some of these bigger farms. And Joe was telling me that some of these ecosystems might be a lot more fragile than we think. The main thing I could stress, the world is only one crop away from starvation. Hmm. And nobody realizes that. Which I guess is why that old Victory Garden promo film was trying to get us to plant 20 different things. Exactly. Variety helps in those situations, and apparently not many big commercial farms do it. I got to visit another farm, which was called Need More Acres, and it's a fairly small family-owned operation. I was helping pick lettuce when Nathan Howell, the co-owner of the farm, was telling me more about the differences between giant farms and the smaller family ones. Most of your industrial farmers or commercial farmers, they're going to be growing all kale. Or they're going to be growing all celery to go to a retail outlet with that. We've been able to experiment with so many different varieties of, of different greens, different small plots that uh, we're able to offer a broad spectrum of vegetables there. Uh, that is one major difference that we're seeing. There's also a separate kind of danger with having fewer people farming now. More people rely on these dwindling number of farmers and big companies out there, so we become really dependent on them. But they're kind of behind a curtain. You don't usually know how they're growing things, the methods they're using, or the chemicals they're using. You don't always know how the food is being processed. Which was the reason why they started their family farm in the first place. Our daughter, um, Lila, started having some health issues. I mean, she was actually diagnosed with Asperger's. We tried several different things to heal her. That's Michelle Howe, Nathan's wife and co-owner of Need More Acres. Her hair was falling out. She was losing weight. It got to a point where it was pretty scary. Had a doctor suggest um, eliminating processed foods and starting fresh fruits and vegetables. And we saw so many improvements for her health. And we were eating that way, too. And we got healthier. Slowly, over a couple years, we started producing more of the food for ourselves and then started selling them to other people. I got to ask Michelle if she thought some of her customers were coming to her for health benefits as well. I think people are more interested in the health side of it. They're wanting to be healthier. They're wanting to eat more fruits and vegetables. You know, I've heard that family gardens have been on the rise. Within the past decade, the amount of home or community gardens has doubled to the point where one third of households in the United States participate. Are you hearing that as well? Yeah, Jeffrey says there was a pretty big increase in interest for the Dowling Community Gardens in just the past 20 years that he's been there. What I've seen since I was, the 20 years I've been there, I would say gardening 
there was kind of a steady flow of people wanting to take up gardens. So I got my garden by putting in my name in the fall, and the next spring I got a plot. Well, uh, soon after I started gardening, the interest in gardening took off, and our waiting list got longer and longer until it got to like six years, which was ridiculous because by the time you get to somebody, they probably, you know, had found another place or they'd moved or they'd lost interest or whatever. And what do you think are the biggest benefits of having a family or a community garden? Well, we have a set of objectives or purposes. And the first one is to provide garden space for our neighbors. But then the second one is to provide community or to be a community of gardeners, uh, people who have things in common about gardening. And, you know, I think that that's the right priority. You know, I am not a particularly social person, but I do enjoy visiting with my neighbors and talking to people about gardening. And, you know, it's just, it just makes it more pleasant and it makes it a little less solitary than if I just had a plot in my backyard and I, I just did it. We have a pretty significant program of contributing surplus vegetables to food shelves. We contribute about 6,000 pounds of vegetables a year to food shelves. And the food shelves love it. People getting food from food shelves don't have a lot of opportunity to get fresh vegetables let alone brand fresh homegrown vegetables. So they go really fast. So we, we, we really like to do that. That program has been really successful. So what would it take to get such a giant number of Americans growing their own food again? One option could be payments from the government. After all, the agriculture industry currently receives roughly $20 billion a year in subsidies, but 77% of that money has gone towards the top 10% of farms, the big companies making a ton of money. I wonder what would happen if a slice of those payments went towards programs for regular families growing things in their own backyard. For me, one of the main challenges is simply time. My schedule feels jam-packed, even my nights and weekends, and I think it's the same for many of you out there. Compared to the 1940s, there's simply so many more things to do in our modern world. The amount of hours it would cost you to grow your own garden might not be worth it. Maybe at the end of the day, it's cheaper to just pay someone else to do the work. But I'll admit, there's still something magical about working with the earth to make something new. The few times I've been able to grow tomatoes and herbs felt like a giant accomplishment. Not to mention the feeling of connecting with nature and getting my hands in the soil and simply getting out of the house. I don't know if we'll ever have another government program like the Victory Gardens that will convince us to help sustain ourselves, but the fact that it worked in the past means it's certainly possible. And the good news is the option is still always available to us, if we're willing to get our hands dirty. But remember what Grandpa says, no work, no garden. Get what that means. No work, no spuds. No work, no turnip, no tank, no flying fortress, no victory. Bear that in mind, all you victory gardeners, and work for victory. Mm -hmm.
Thanks for listening to Reconnecting Roots. To learn more about the TV series, watch video clips, and more, go to reconnectingroots.tv. Feel free to rate us or leave a comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so we can keep the conversation going. Until next time. Thank you.